Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we were offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 46, our review of the recent NFLD Summit, plus, from the vault, a section from December 2021 looking at the relationship between weight loss related to bariatric surgery and liver fibrosis and how that might compare to the results we will get from drugs and development. This conversation starts with me asking about a tactic that some companies have sometimes used in drug development. When a Phase 2B trial fails, they seek a positive data stream or subset that they can use for a Phase 3 design. I note this approach has led to several failures, notably including l which was one of the three Phase 3 trial failures covered in the morning presentations. The group discusses this issue from several different perspectives. One key idea that emerges is that in recent years, the strong results some drugs are showing in Phase 2A and Phase 2B have raised expectations about what a drug must do before continued development. From there, we go into the question of whether educating patients to drive better self-management during the trial is a Hawthorne effect or not. I say not. Well, Mazen says it is as patients are likely to return to their original behavior after the trial ends. This conversation continues in Conversation 4. For the second straight week, it has been our pleasure and honor to cover a major medical meeting with significant science and policy issues attached. Also, this conversation brought some important voices in Nashville to the podcast for the first time, which is always a good thing. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. One thing that Elizabeth did not talk about that I hoped somebody might was if you don't hit your primary endpoints in phase two B, but you can torture your data so it looks like you've hit something of value, should you do that and go on to phase three? Or should you say, you know, we're just not going to make this work? Because right? I think that was part of the uh, GenFit story and after that was part of the OCA story also. Uh, phase two Bs that did not hit their primary endpoints that needed to be reinterpreted. Uh, GenFit, the drug, as we know, crashed and OCA were still waiting. I think one of the reasons that happened, though, is that the profession wanted the drug so badly, and we knew so much less than we do now. What, we saw five phase three candidates today that all look pretty good or better? So, Mazen, first to let you know, next week's episode is going to be about Acaro and um, the other new studies. Mazen Nuruddin. I agree with you. To answer your question directly, if it's negative to B, would I go to three? I want to start with the, the logical answer is no. I mean, yet we, we all know that maybe national solution is a, is a higher bar now, although a lot of drugs started hitting it. But maybe there is a less effective drug that eventually can work out. I would say at the current time, if histology is the outcome, we all have to deal with internal and intra-observable variability, Hawthorne effects, placebo effects, you name it. So if your phase 2B on histology is negative and the regulator is still requiring the same endpoints, the same way, the same everything, I'll answer from physician standpoint, I'll probably be less likely to put my patient in that phase 3. I want my patient at least to have some benefit. I mean, I, I don't want it to be very slim in phase 2 or negative and put them on a phase 3. So that's my immediate answer for that. Not thinking about what pharma does, not thinking about the financial consideration and all that. So you have to remember though, Altafermin, MGM kills the drug and the stock market rewards the stock price because we're now at a point where we've seen enough things blow up in 2B 
that investors are skittish about putting any more money behind a small company with a 2B failure. And Alda Furman wasn't really a failure. It was just one bad data point at one dose. We, we talked about Alda Furman before, and Arun mentioned it during the meeting, and I totally agree with him. I think the drug worked with the secondary endpoint, which is one of the primary endpoints that the FDA requires in phase three. And I do support their serotic trial because technically they hit one of the endpoints that has been established as primary efficacy endpoint. So just wanted to throw that out there. Sven Frank. We should also not forget that the landscape has drastically changed. So if you look at the phase two GenFit data, you see some effect on steatohepatitis. It's not just Nash resolution, but if you look at the individual components, you see a clear effect on the steatohepatitis. That does not translate it in the overall population in fibrosis regression, but those that had an improvement in steatohepatitis also had some improvement in fibrosis. So at that point of time, given the competitive landscape at that moment, I think it was quite justified to explore that drug in phase three. And phase three confirmed that there was some effect on steatohepatitis, but not strong enough to translate into an effect on fibrosis. So I think that was perfectly justifiable. And that's what we have seen with other drugs. Now we are in an era where, especially with the metabolically active drugs, you have larger effect size, more pronounced effects. So if in a phase two, you only have marginal effects, you're not likely to beat the competition. So then you can say, okay, that doesn't make sense to go to phase three. But that's a different landscape than when decisions have been made on Elafibranor and other compounds uh, several years ago. I think that's very well stated. The time, what was available then, the clinical trials, the outcomes, I mean, at one point we were at two-point NAS improvement, that is a past. So it's evolving field. And I always say it's easy to criticize after the fact and when things fail, but you really have to put yourself in these people's shoes when, let's say, they did it December 2018. What was the landscape? What was the best knowledge they did? And what did they come up with? Was it their best judgment and best knowledge at that time? So I totally agree with Sven on this. Remember that in the early areas of Hep C, we were quite happy with a few percentages of SVR. I got to work on all that stuff. (laughs) A lot of the drugs that didn't do very well or or did okay. The earlier Hep C drugs, we did pricing and forecasting for. And I did a lot of that for Ella also for GenFit. I think the point of change, the, the other difference though, frankly, is that I think at that point in time, investors wanted the drug to succeed badly enough that you could get the money you needed to do the phase three trial. So I think the investors are a little skittish about trials that have failed or the trials that have failed to make investors skittish even about good drugs. Again, we discussed it at that time. Also, SEMA was around and the the effects was much better on Nash resolution. And uh, it's a drug that addressed the entire body with weight loss and prediabetes and all this. So it's probably the right decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. But yeah, as Sven said, there's like a lot of other cofactors in the field and the science and the market, as you're saying, Roger, that there are a lot of considerations that the sponsors uh, take in. I totally agree with that. I want to go to one of the issues that underlied a lot of the meeting that I'm going to come into in kind of a funny way. The issue is what are we trying to do here globally? And the funny way I'm going to come into it is through the discussion this morning about Hawthorne effect, because what was described this morning as a Hawthorne effect isn't. And I'm not just being picky. It actually matters. A Hawthorne effect is a research artifact. In the original study, you have a wall that's white, you paint it green, productivity goes up. Productivity drops, you paint it white, productivity goes up again. So whereas they originally thought it was the color that you paint the wall, it turns out it was just the fact that you paint the wall. And that's, an, that's a research artifact. And those are the things that you want to avoid. Here, what we were calling a Hawthorne effect is that we educate patients 
in the placebo group. And as a result, they perform better, which creates a better placebo response and therefore a higher standard for the drug. But the question I was asking myself, and because I'm not a researcher, I wasn't going to go behind Mike for this, is if what we're here to do is help patients, then at the end of the day, in the reality of life, we hope that we will get better at educating patients on how to take care of themselves at the same time the drugs come to market. So what we were calling a Hawthorne effect is in fact the environment that we'd like to create. And then it's not a research artifact, then it's an effort to simulate, if you will, to manifest the future you want to have. And I think really a good thing. Now it makes it harder to get the drug approved, but it makes it a lot more realistic in terms of thinking about where might we go. So it's an interesting question. Let me just play the devil advocate on this. So you agree that the Hawthorne effect is when individual modify their behavior because of the trial? No, I, I would define the Hawthorne effect as a research artifact. If they modify their behavior because when they go into trial, they learn how to take better care of themselves and therefore they do that. And many of them may continue to do that after the trial is over. That's not a Hawthorne effect. That's that's a behavior change. Hawthorne effect is a research artifact. So for example, when Hannes was talking about alcohol before and I said, and I said that's, that's the Hawthorne effect, people are going to start drinking again as soon as the trial's over. I get that part. Here, I, I don't know though. And by the way, even if they go back to the behavior they had before after the trial, in five years when we've got $10 billion in sales and a lot of drugs and therefore a lot of patient education, we're going to be trying to educate patients to the level that they're at while they're in the trial, not the one they were at before or after. So that's why I didn't think of it as a Hawthorne effect. I mean, you, you can look at it different ways. But my counter argument that if a patient go on a trial and they modify their effect or they start exercising and losing weight, are they going to continue that? The answer what we know from the literature is most likely not. We had, I'm not saying we shouldn't compare to, we should start with, just to be clear to everyone, weight loss and exercise is essential. People need to change that. People need to eat better. People need to walk 10,000 square foot on a bridge. And even there's no bridge, nice views, they, they should do that. But in a clinical trial is, the question is, do they go change their behavioral, affect the drug, and then get out of the trial and back to where they're at and the drug is affected? The other point is, we know, for instance, the Largome study in gastro, now it's like very highly cited, that it's very hard to achieve weight loss, especially for 10%. And most people reverse after. I mean, like they, they go back to what there was. So I, I think it's a complicated concept on the, the modification and within NASH clinical trials. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to discuss some highlights from the EASD and British Liver Association meetings with folks who attended those events. In the meantime, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.